You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, we, we, let me back up. If you want to know and what's important to them. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that you look at two types of documents. Anybody remember what those two types of documents were? Your calendar and your checkbook, your banking account. You know your money, how you do do with those is the true marker, a true marker of what you value and what your priorities are, what you think is important. And um, so it's we, we talked about time. Today we're going to actually shift gears. Jesus continues and starts talking. I need my hands, though. Object lessons. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the enemy also doesn't have some. The enemy of technology. Is this on? Oh, man. I got to, like, eat the thing. No, can you? Okay, okay. Let's go back. In Luke 11, uh, after Luke 10, Luke 11, Jesus, at the end of that, he blasts the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. They are people who have a facade of religion, but their life is actually contradictory to the kingdom. And then we're going to look at Luke chapter 12 today. In Luke chapter 12, he begins by warning uh, the people, the crowds around them, all of that same hypocrisy. It's just not for the Pharisees. It's for everybody. He says in verse 1, look at you, if, I'm going to walk through chapter 12, parts of it, so you need, if you have it open, you need to do it. It won't be on the screen. And that is, in verse 1, he says, in, in the meantime, after he had blasted the Pharisees, he said, when so many thousands of people gathered together, uh, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples. So the crowds were gathering, the things were really happening, but Jesus turns, instead of addressing the crowds, he turns his attention and again addresses his disciples. He's given his priority uh, to the success of the kingdom, and the crowds around them want things from him, but there's things that the disciples need to know, so he gives them their attention. At the end of verse 1, at the second half, he gives them a warning. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something you're not. It's being a poser. It's putting on a facade, I appear to be this way, but really behind that is something completely different. And he's warning them, see those religious people, those religious fanatics? Their facade is hypocrisy. It's fake. Don't be like them. And he says that it's leaven. It's very subtle. We want to be like them. There's a draw to be like them. That's the power of it. But actually, it's very devastating. And then in verse 2 and 3, he gives the reason. And the reason, he says, is nothing is, unco- nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden, and nothing that will, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you say, have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Now, we just need to pause here. What Jesus is saying is that the real, the real issue of hypocrisy is you can fool people actually your whole life. You could pretend to be something you want, but there's coming a day when everything will be exposed. Our whole lives will, will be, be open to everybody to see. And, and what we do in secret won't be secret. Everything we have ever done, ever done, every thought will be exposed to everybody in the time of judgment. And we need to set the context. It's something that we sometimes forget, and this is part of the big point of Luke chapter 12. Jesus wants to remind throughout the whole chapter that we live in a time of, of uh, an earth and things are happening, but this isn't the way it's always going to be. God created the world, and he created it perfect the way he intended it to be. But he also knew not only did he create the world, that he's going to have to redeem the world because he knew sin was coming. Man fell. We've been in sin ever since. And since the time of Adam, God has been redeeming. He's been doing stuff to bring back his creation and restoring it to himself. That culminates in the life and death of Jesus Christ. In the life and death of Jesus Christ, he ultimately takes care of all the sin issues, and he ushers in his kingdom. And we use the the term, it's the already, not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet complete. 
And in this age since the time of Christ, for us it's been 2,000 years, and we don't know how much more it's going. We're going through this age where the kingdom is here. It's the truth of the gospel is, is real, and it's advancing. But we are limited. At some point in the time, Christ is going to return. And then it's what theologically they call the consummation. Everything will be complete, and God will recreate everything into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, part of the message, the big picture of that is that God is redeeming the world to himself in Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He rose again according to the Scriptures. And those who respond to the gospel message in repentance and faith will be saved. For eternity, they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. But part of that message is those who do not respond to the gospel in in, in repentance and faith will not be, quote-unquote, saved, will not be born again. They will not go to heaven. They will go to what we know and is called hell, eternal judgment, eternal suffering. What's often forgotten or often we don't highlight is even at that point when Christ judges and he is the judge, he will judge both those who are Christians and non-Christians, there's also another judgment. And that is the judgment of those who are Christians. And those of the Christians are, they will be not of guilt and shame. They will not be punished. It's not purgatory. It's not to break people up. What it is is, it is it's going to be, we understand it in the language of rewards. Those who have lived in according to the kingdom, what, how they have lived that way will be exposed and will be shown, and they'll be rewarded. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about it. He uses the analogy of building. And if, he, if you, you are building your life, and you're working on it, and you use things that are very earthly in a sense of very selfish and, and uh, not of God's kingdom. It's like building your life on wood, hay, and stubble, wood, hay, and grass. Okay, how sound is that? But if you're, if you're doing kingdom work, you're responding to the grace of God, and you're working it, he says it's like building on uh, gold, silver, and costly stones. And then someday, he says, that, that what your work is in your life will be shown for what it is. We will, it'll be exposed. And when God, when God judges the, the, us as believers at the, at the, um, and when he returns, it'll be, Paul says, something like, uh, there'll be a fire. And I imagine, this is my imagination, so take it for what it's worth, I think we'll be exposed to the holiness of God. And I think our life will be laid out literally in a timeline. We'll see everything. Everybody will see it all at once. And then God's holiness will be exposed to it. And it'll be a... That's, that's the holiness. Okay? That's the fire. And then God's going to go... And he's going to blow away all the ash. And the wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up. And the ash is gone. But what's left is the gold, silver, and costly stones of the kingdom work. That's what we have for eternity. That's the jewels. That's the treasure we have for eternity. And, and that's it's a work of God, but he'll see it. And we are going to rejoice. Look at that. Look at what God has done in our life. And, and we'll see that and we'll celebrate that. We sometimes think of life as, as we think of life as, um, this is where I need in my hands, okay? Life is this long. It's a measure. And we measure our life this way. There's a beginning and there's an end. We think it's really long. Reality is, for most of it, it's really just this long. Okay? We think it's going to last forever. We think it's long. Let me tell you something. As you get older, it gets shorter. Not only because it's getting shorter, you realize how fast it's going. The problem is we think this is all there is. Really, what eternity is from here to New York City is distance. But compared to this one foot, that's the distance. We don't see past here. In our earthliness, we don't see past here. But the reality is our eternal life goes on forever. And we waste a lot of time in this one foot. We, we focus our life on this one foot, where the reality is our life is going to be going on for eternity after that. The question is, what are we doing with our one foot of life? And who is in control of that one foot of life? God's it. And the hypocrisy is that these people eventually will be exposed for what they are, what they're doing. Well, Jesus takes on an event, and he leverages that in chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 13. He leverages an event that happened that involves death. A man comes to Jesus, his, uh, his, uh, his, his, uh, he, his, I assume it's his father, passed away, and his family's in dispute over the inheritance. He says in verse 13 and 14, someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance, inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? Which is a little sarcastic because he is the judge and arbitrator over him ultimately. The man requests that Jesus handle a dispute. My father's dead. We're having problems, which really sets the context for this. 
money, the inheritance, is causing relational problems. And, and so that's the context uh, that Jesus brings it in. So he says in verse 15, And he said to them, um, Take care, these are to his disciples, Be on your guard against all covetousness, which with, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. He gives a warning. Take care. Be on your guard. He repeats himself. He says it twice. And he says, be on your guard against all kind of covetousness. We use the word more likely in our culture, greed. Watch yourself for greed. At at the pursuit of possessions, money, things, material things. Watch it. Greed is a desire for more, and it's never satisfied. That's why it's greed. And the amount is not the issue. He doesn't give an amount. Be careful you go past this point. Whatever it is, be careful whatever your greed is. And he says, and he goes on and says, for life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. This is for life, one's life does not consist. It's the reason why we need to guard against greed. Greed is going to take you down the wrong road. When you have to pay the price in eternity, greed isn't going to get you there. So watch out for it. And he says, he says, in contrary to our cultural perception and our personal desire for many of us, the person with the most toys doesn't win. They lose. And that's the contrary of the kingdom principles. And seeking and desiring things that are contrary to God's kingdom only takes us down the wrong way. And then in verse 16, he tells a parable. Jesus wants to tell him a story to bring it home. He says in, in verse 16, he says, And he told them a parable, saying, In a land was a rich man who produced, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, the land produced plentifully, the way it's worded here is that it implies a blessing by God. It didn't say the guy made a lot of money. It said his land produced it for him. The implication here is God produced the, the, fine, the blessing for him. He is, there's no moral. He didn't say he's a crook. He didn't rip people off. He's not a tax collector. He's not a criminal. He's not condemned for doing illegal practices. He just was blessed by God, and he got a lot of money. That's all there is to it. The problem, and his problem was a natural problem. The more he got, he had to do something with it. Right? It's, it's a very natural problem. And um, what do you do when you get increased wealth? What you have can't cont- hold it. So what do you do with it? Well, we see in verses 17 and 19 that the man has a monologue with himself, and he expresses the dilemma from his perspective. And he says this, uh, and it gives us an insight into his heart. It gives us an insight into him. And as you read these verses, notice the I and the my. Notice the I and the my throughout this. He says, in verse 17, But he, being the man, thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have, I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? <laughs> I love that. I mean, how many of you refer to yourself like way? I will say to my soul, Soul? As if he has control over that. I mean, it's just, it's pretty arrogant. Uh, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Amen. Right? His focus is on himself. It's self-credit, self-interest. He implies earned wealth that he achieved this. He, He hoards into multiple storehouses and is not generous with what he's getting. His conclusion of getting more is to keep it. And the more he gets, the more he wants to keep it. And that's the point. He focuses on his leisure and self-indulgence and self-centered pleasure. And his plans and priorities give us a tip for his values. It gives us a tip for his priorities and what he worshipped. As he increased in wealth, instead of having the responsibility of being a good steward of that wealth, he kept it for himself and was a bad steward. His, he, he fiscally managed his money well. He morally mismanaged his money. So Jesus goes on in verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, not soul, but fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He expects, he's storing things up because he expects that he's going to live a long time. He's going to be able to enjoy it. And God says to him, Fool, uh, you're not going to, Fool is a person who acts without consideration of God. Or biblically, or it's somebody who acts knowing that there's peril ahead, but goes ahead and does it anyways. Biblically, those are fools. And God is saying, you should know better, but you're acting contrary to that. You're being foolish. And, and then there's a lingering question. God asks him a question. He says, he says, 
this, this night, your soul is required of him, which, which means what? He's going to die. Okay? You're going to die tonight. Who then gets all your stuff? Okay? That, that's the paradoxical question. Who gets your stuff? Remember, that's what Jesus began this whole thing is. Guy came, hey, divide the inheritance. Here, here's, the, here's the paradox of that statement. Who gets your stuff? You don't. Right? That's what God's saying. All that time, all that effort, you don't get to keep it. Now you're faced with eternity without it. And then, he has, and then in verse 21, he gives the lesson of the parable. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So, so is the one. Jesus phrased there, so is the one, now makes this a universal principle. He's not just talking about the guy in the parable. He's now saying everybody. Here's the application of that parable. Here's the point. He says, our time on earth is borrowed time. The length of our yardstick or ruler is determined by God. We don't know when it is. He does. And when he says time's up, time's up. And then what do we do with our stuff? And um, we cannot repay a moral debt with our wealth and possessions. It will, it's absolutely worthless for eternity. And, though, and for those who are greedy and covetous and, and uh, hoard their wealth, the loss of life is the loss of everything. And, the, and anyways, wealth in, in and of itself is not the issue. It's really important. It's not the amount that's the issue. There are people who are greedy who are in poverty, and there are people who are greedy who are billionaires. The issue is the greed and what they do with the money, not the amount. Nowhere in the parable is the amount or in the rest of the teaching. Is That's not the issue. Consequence, the covetousness of the greed is a subtle, subtle and devastating obstacle from God. That, so he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich towards God. And there's a comparison. That's the conclusion. The comparison is, are you doing it for yourself or are you rich towards God? That's the tension. And that leads us to a question. How do we know if we're laying up treasure for ourselves and not rich towards God, if that's the point of the parable? Well, he goes on in verse 22. He says, he says, and he said to his disciples, again, he's back to addressing his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. He goes, therefore, he's linking it back to 21. He's, in that conclusion, now let me apply this to you. He says, here's a command. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about your life. Do not be anxious. It's, a, it's in the present tense. It's a constant attitude. It's not just a one time. It's not occasional. Your life should be marked by not being anxious, not worrying. And, and about life, both the little details and the big picture, you're not worried about it. And he speaks to his disciples. He's get, saying, what do you trust? Where is your trust placed? What you eat, and now we're about your body and what you'll put on, and he names. What, what are the things that you find security in? Don't look to them, those things, for your security. Look to me for your security. The point is not here that asceticism, that we need to get rid of everything and just live a very ascetic, poverty-stricken life. That's not his point. His point is, do you have an act of trust in God? Is that God is your provider? Do you live and act in a way that God's going to provide for your needs? And, he's, and he, then he gives a series of reasons not to be anxious. He gives very illustrative. Jesus does. He, goes, he spends a lot of time on don't being anxious. Why do you think he spends so much time on don't being anxious? Because we're pretty anxious people. We spend a lot of our time and energy worrying about things. So he unpacks that quite a bit. The most of this, this line of the wealth, that he spends more time on the anxiety aspect of it than he does the other ones. And he gives some reasons. For example, in verse 23, he says, For, again, for, he's showing a reason, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Although food and clothing are essential for life, um, they are not the most important when you think of life, God's eternal kingdom. They're just food and clothing. The necessity for survival, but not for fulfillment, not for the abundance of life. And they are daily essential needs. He's not talking about, again, provide us what we need to move forward, to live, to survive. Not to be extravagant. He never promises that extravagance. Just like in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Today. Lord, we need it today. Worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. We need today's bread. And there's an immediacy for it. And then he, and he gives an illustration. Consider the ravens. They are neither sow nor reap, nor, and they, they, uh, nor have storehouses nor a barn, yet the God feeds them. Ravens uh, are birds people don't like. 
the blackbirds. They're, they're a nuisance. He actually picks an animal that people don't like. He says, the ravens go after these things. And guess what? God provides for even the ravens, those annoying birds. And then his point is, and, and, and then he says in the end of verse 24, how much more valuable are you than the birds? And yet God provides for them. How much more? It's an emphasis. How much more are you valuable to me, to God, than them? What's his point? Don't worry. And then in the second reason, he says in verse 25 and 26, he says, he says to, which of you, uh, to which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Or if, if then you are, who are not able to do this, a thing as small as that, uh, why are you anxious about the rest? So basically he's saying, he's using like a ruler, he's saying, who can add another inch to your lifeline? Who can add another hour, unit of measurement? Does your worrying add to your life in any way? What's the answer? The answer is no. Worry is useless. Worry is a wasted emotional energy. It cannot achieve the thing that we're actually worrying about. If that's the case, why worry? And then he goes on in illustration. Consider the lilies of the fields, and, and he consider the grass. Lilies are ornaments uh, fit for kings. They're very, obviously very ornate flowers. And we're told that Solomon's temple had lilies in it. And also, but grass. Grass is something that is a nuisance. And it doesn't make a difference. God provides both. Both the fine, fancy flowers and the grass. And the principle is, and at the end of verse 28, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? O you of little faith. You're more invaluable than flowers and grass and ravens. So... Why won't you think that God would also provide for you what you need to do his work and to live in according to what he wants you to do? Oh, it's a rebuke. He's, he's, he's admonishing them. Oh, you of little faith. Um, he's identifying the central issue here is what, what is faith, what is our faith placed in? It's important here because faith is, is not just believing something is true. If I took a poll, how many of us believe that God can provide our needs, most of us, I suspect, would raise our hands. That's not faith. That's just acknowledgement that something's true. And we can teach something's true. We can, we can um, confess that it's true. We can assent that it's true. We can agree that it's true. That's not faith. Faith is acting on the truth. Faith is saying, this is true, therefore, I am going to do this. I'm going to act a certain way. If I really trust that God will provide for my needs, then that will dictate, that will at least influence in some way, maybe not dictate, but it'll influence in some way how I live my life. If it doesn't, it's not faith. It's not faith in God. Anxiety is the opposite of faith. Being anxious, being worried is the exact opposite of faith. Now remember the question, how do we know we're laying up treasure for ourselves but not rich towards God? What was Jesus' answer in verses 22 through 28? Do we live our lives dominated by anxiety over what was out of our control? Or do we have faith in God who has complete control? That's how we know. But there's, that leads to a second question, though. The second question is, how do we reduce anxiety and increase faith? If we're stuck in anxiety and we need more faith, how do we reduce the anxiety and increase faith? Well, Jesus tells us. Uh, Jesus reiterates his principle in verse 29. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, nor be worried. Don't be anxious. And he gives us the reason in verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, but your Father knows that you need them. He's given a contrast here, a reason for, for all the nations. There's a contrast. He has here, in this case, there's many people, nations, whole groups of people without God pursuing possessions. And, and they worries of life. Anxiety and worry are a result of a faulty view of God. But he says, I want you guys to be part of the few, the disciples, who are with God. And, and you have a trust and care in your heavenly Father. Therefore, your security is the pursuit of those things that have confidence in God. What is it we're supposed to be seeking? Possessions, like most people, or God, like a few? That's his question. And then he gives a command in verse 31. 
Look at verse 31. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Um, in, in the beginning there, he says, instead, he's given two choices of seeking. You can seek after the things the world does, but instead, let me give you the direction. This is Jesus speaking. Um, I want you to do something. Seek is a present tense. Keep on seeking his kingdom. Continue. Action. Habit. Routine. Lifestyle. is We are going to seek after God's kingdom. And his disciples are need to be aware of God's sovereign work in their life, his grace. They're supposed to pursue his mission, what God is about. They're supposed to be about the same work. And he says, and then all these things will be added to you as well. If you're seeking God and not worrying about the things as you seek God, he'll take care of the things that you're not worried about. And it's, it's in a basic essential life. There's no promise of, of huge wealth. We want to be careful here. This is not a prosperity gospel thing. Uh, he, what, is it, what is it going to take for you day to day to seek God's kingdom? That's what God's going to provide for you. If, he's, if he wants you to seek his kingdom and you're living that way, he will provide for that. And then, and then the assumption also is there, if he provides it to us, it assumes that we're supposed to be using it for his kingdom. It works both ways. Just like in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven. What's the very next line? Give us this day our daily bread. God, let us know what your will is so we can do your will. And then the next line is, can you provide enough for us to get the will done? No more, no less, but provide the resources that we can do your will. That's the prayer of our hearts. This is, I want to be clear, this is not a poverty theology. This is not, it's holy to be poor. That's not the issue here. It's, nor is it a prosperity theology that God's blessing is numerically assigned to your bank account. That's not true either. It's a kingdom theology. It doesn't make a difference if you have a little or a lot. God doesn't care, well, he does care, but what you get, what he wants to know is what you're doing with that. That's the issue. Now remember the second question? How do we reduce our anxiety and increase our faith? What was Jesus' answer in 29 and 30? Seek God's kingdom over earthly possessions. That's how you do that. But that raises a third question. How do we know if we are seeking earthly possessions or seeking God's kingdom? How do we know? How can we be clear on that? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 32. Look at verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. This is, this is the shepherd, this is the gentleness of Jesus dealing with the reality of their anxiety. I'm now going to get more specific with you, disciples, and I'm addressing your fear. Because most of us, when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our possessions, our things, when we start talking about kingdom stuff, we get, very ang- we get nervous, okay? And Jesus knows that. There's anxiety. It's natural for us in our, in our selfishness, in our sin, in our, in our limited understanding, in our lack of faith. So he says, fear not, O little flock. He, he's assuming that the natural response to what he's saying for them is fear. Okay, Jesus, this is good stuff, but you're making me uncomfortable. And then he calls them the little flock. He calls them helpless, weak, uh, easily scared. Okay, he's using imagery there to say, I understand. Come on in here. I'll take care of you. And then he gives them a command. I think they're a little caught off guard by the command. He says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Yeah, man. (laughs) Sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Here's the principle of determining what you're seeking. This is the principle of determining what you're seeking. What are you willing to give up? And what do you do with it? It's, it's both what are you willing to give up, but not just not have it. What are you willing to do with what you're giving up? Or put it another way, do we give up things in order to serve people? Or do we give up people in order to serve things? That's the question of what you're seeking. It's what are you willing to give up? And, and, and conversely, what's the opposite question? What are you not willing to give up? And then what are you not willing to do with what you have? That's how you know what you're seeking. Are you seeking yourself? Are you seeking the kingdom? Seeking and pursuing one thing means naturally that we're not seeking the other thing. 
We, we, can't, we can't do both. And he says in that, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. The ultimate issue is our faith in God. Faith is acting on the truth we believe. It's, it's believing that God is able and willing to provide for us, and he has been very generous to us regardless of the amount. He has been very generous to us in having life, and whatever possessions we have, then the question is, if he's been that generous to us, what are we going to do? Are we going to have our security in the things, or are we going to have our security in the fact that we serve and have a loving, heavenly, generous God, and no matter what we give away, he can backfill with more? That's the issue. Are you willing to give it away so that God can backfill with more? Many people don't get more blessings by God because they don't give away what they have. That's the challenge that the disciples and we face. He says, seeking the kingdom, seeking God's kingdom does two things by implication here. It's looking inward at our faith. Do we really believe God is able to do what he says he's going to do? Will he really keep his promises to us? And it's also looking outwardly for opportunities to serve. It's looking outwardly to act on the things that he's told us to do in obedience. So it's both. Do I have faith? Well, how do I know? Am I willing to do what he's asked me to do? Now, we have to ask the question, does God really want us to sell the things we have? And give it away. Does God really? He's just being metaphorical. He's using figurative language. He's Jesus is just trying to make a point. Don't take him literally, right? Does Jesus really want us to give away the things that we have? I believe the answer is yes. He does. For four reasons. I actually had originally numerous reasons, but I'm only going to talk about four from this passage. I obviously had to wrestle with this one. Okay. First of all. God's material blessing is, means greater responsibility. If we believe God is the manager, he's the owner of everything, and we are the managers of that, the more he gives us, the more responsibility we have to, keep, to do those things. That was the point of the parable. You got lots of things. That's awesome. What are you doing with it? Okay? And, and the more you get, the more responsibility you get. We need to manage God's resources God's way. It doesn't make a difference if it's a little or a lot. It's not about the amount. Secondly, giving, giving things away is a primary antidote of the plagues of greed and covetousness and anxiety. As a kingdom principle, as we look in Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, and other passages, when we're dealing with sin of greed and, and those kind of things, anxiety in our life, and they are sin because there are lacks of faith in God, the way to get rid of those things is to do the opposite. We, we put, it's repentance and faith. It's putting off and putting on. We talked about this when we went through Colossians. It's, it's saying, this is not the way God wants us in my identity with Christ, with who I am with Christ. It, this is not living that way, so I'm going to remember who I am in Christ. I'm a son of God. I'm justified. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. All those things. Therefore, I get to go this way, and I do the opposite. So the opposite of anxiety and hoarding is giving it away. And if I want to overcome the anxiety in my life and the hoarding and those things in my life, one of the best ways to do that is to give it away. Thirdly, if we ask in the question how much, thirdly, we often ask, the question comes down to, how much do we give away? How much do I have to give away? Right? Usually when we say we need to give things away, the next question is, how much? How much do we give away? Which is really, really asking a different question. When we ask, how much do I have to give away, what am I really asking? How much do I keep? Let's be honest. That's what we're saying. How much do I get to hang on to? And, um, and, and money's like sex. Okay? I got your attention now, right? <laughs> if you ever work with people who are dealing with the issue of outside of marriage and dealing with sexual immorality, and they ask the question, how far can we go before it's too far? Okay? which is the, usually the, the question a pastor gets asked. Well, if you begin with that question, you're screwed. And the pun is intended. Okay? Because, because if you begin with how far can I go before it's wrong, you'll always find a reason to push the limit. Right? Amen. Preach it, brother. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Money is the exact opposite, though. It's the same principle, exact opposite. When we, ask, when we begin with the question, how much do I get to keep? We will always find a reason to keep more. We, if we begin with that question, how much do I get to keep? We will always find a reason, and it's never enough. We need to keep more. And we'll always pull it. That's another reason why beginning with these questions is dangerous. We'll always justify ourselves. The fourth reason is, 
and I think is the heart of the matter here, is how we respond to the command to give away what you have, sell what you have, and give it to the poor is really an issue of the heart. It's an issue of what we value, what is our priorities, and it's going to determine our heart. What do we worship? In, in Luke chapter 18, when we get there in a couple of weeks, a few weeks, four weeks, five weeks, whatever, what's, what's 12 plus, minus, okay, six weeks, I'm a math, math whiz here, we're going, to read, we're going to read about the story of the, uh, the rich young ruler. In the rich young ruler, a man comes to Jesus, wants to be a follower of Jesus. You, you may or may not be familiar with the story. And he comes, and he's very wealthy, and obviously has his act together. And he asks Jesus, what must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, keep the commandments. Well, what are they? And Jesus, Jesus lists off a series of commandments. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do honor your father and mother. Interesting enough, he doesn't say, don't covet. And then he says to the man, and then the man says, I've done this since I was a child. Okay, this is where we go, liar. Okay. But Jesus does not argue with him, does he? Jesus does not argue. Jesus said, okay, one thing you lack, one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have, give it away, and come follow me. And what was the man's response? turned around, and walked away. Why? Because he was extremely rich. Why did Jesus not list the commandment, do not covet? Because he would have said, done it since childhood. So Jesus said, okay, give away what you have. Prove to me. Prove. Give away what you have, and then give it to the poor. And then you come follow me. You get me. And the man refused, walked away. Jesus didn't chase him, did he? Jesus gave him the option to walk away. And, and then Jesus goes on. His disciples get freaked out. We'll see his disciples get freaked out. Uh, what, who can get saved? If the rich can't get saved, who gets saved? And Jesus' response to him is, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than of a rich man based on his riches to get to heaven. And that's what, that's what floored the disciples. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has, and, and I'm sorry, back up. Peter says, hey, we left our homes. We, we gave things up for you, okay, Jesus? We left our homes, we left our jobs, we left our families. We're following you. What do we get? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, this life, and in the age to come. There is more to come. There's kingdom things to come. And in fact, back to, let's go back to Luke chapter 12. At the end of verse 33, he says, he says seek, uh, uh, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. And then he continues, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with treasure um, in the heavens that does not fail, nor uh, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus is just saying, hey, earthly treasure, the things we store up and hoard in our barns and our bank accounts and all those possessions are perishable. They rot. They break. They're stolen. They wear out. They're outdated. All those things. It's, it really is a foolishness thing to spend time and money and effort on a lot of the things we have that perish, even within our own lifetimes. And Jesus said, unlike the earthly counterpart, the kingdom treasure, treasure never, never stolen, never decays, never tarnishes, never rots. It actually increases in value. So which is the wiser investment? Which is the wiser way to spend our lives? Are we willing to sacrifice, Jesus is asking, the temporal treasure to obtain an eternal treasure? Randy Elkhorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle, and his treasure principle is quite simply this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Okay? That's the treasure principle, according to Randy. You can't take it with you. Your earthly possessions, you can't take with you. But the heavenly treasures, you can send them on ahead. We, um, how we wrestle with this issue of what we're doing with our money and how we, how we practically work it out, we have, as elders have been talking about this for a while, and we, as we were working through things, we uh, came across a book called Money, God or Gift. And this is a book. Uh, a guy, uh, a pastor at Mars Hill in Seattle wrote Jamie Munson, and it's based on Luke chapter 12, what we're looking at today. So we have gotten copies for all of you. 
and this is the deal. We feel that this issue of, of possessions and money and how it reflects the kingdom values is so uh, deeply rooted, the anxiety of it and the, and the bondage of it is so deeply rooted in most of us. And let's just be fair, it, it looks differently for different people, that we need to give more time and attention to it as a church. And so, therefore, we have copies, one copy for every household. And what we're going to do is this. If you're in a home community, we're going to give each household a copy of this. They're in the back at the Connect booth. If you're in a home community, walk up there, take a copy, and it's yours. Okay? In your home communities, you're going to discuss this for the next three weeks. The way this book is written, it's written for you read one chapter, and they're very, a couple pages, very small chapters. You read one Monday through Friday each week, and then your home community is going to discuss what, that, what those five chapters said. It's broken into three parts, five chapters each, very short chapters, has discussion questions in it. This is what it's made for, what we're using it for. So we're asking you and your home communities to pick up a copy, read it one chapter each, each night, and you'll discuss it, okay, for the next three weeks. If you're not in a home community, well, this is where I put in a plug and say, you should be in a home community, okay? We'll let that one go. You still can get a copy, one copy per household. One copy per household. We have enough copies. You should have enough, plenty for everybody with one per household. If you're not in a home community, we still want you to have it. We still want you to read it. We still want you to read one chapter a week. We still want you to discuss it with friends, family, spouses, whatever you need to discuss it with, even if it's not your home community. Here's the catch for you, though, if you're not in a home community. Is, uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. And we just want you to give us your name and your email address, and uh, you can take a copy for free. Okay? We're not, we, you don't have to buy the copy. It's yours. But we do want to know if you took a copy. And we are going to contact you at some point and say, how's it going to the book? We think it's important enough to have some accountability with this that, that we, uh, we want to uh, contact you. Now, this is where I get a little tongue-in-cheek and say, if it makes you uncomfortable that an elder might email you asking you how you're reading a book, okay, when you stand before Christ, it's going to be a lot more uncomfortable. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Remember the third question. How do we know if we are seeking earthly possessions or seeking God's kingdom? Jesus said, and based on verses 32-33, what are you willing to give up and what are you giving, willing to give yourselves to? Are you willing to give up your possessions in order to pursue God? Or are you going to give up God in order to pursue possessions? That's how you know what you're seeking. But that leads us to a fourth question. How do we know if we're pursuing God? How do we know if we're pursuing God? The generosity of our possessions shows our understanding how God cares for us and what we really treasure. Look at verse 34. And this is the heart of Jesus' teaching at this point so far. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We will seek what we value the most. We will be loyal to what we value the most. So the question is, what do you treasure? That's where your heart is. And that's the point of the parable. He asks in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Treasure to treasure. Which one do you really treasure? That's where your heart is. In the Bible, greed, wanting, desiring more and more things, is called idolatry. Idolatry is false worship. It's worshiping something that is an idol. It doesn't have to be a statue. Idolatry can be other things, other people. It could be fame. It could be status. It can be possessions. And Paul, Paul particularly says greed names. Greed is idolatry. For example, in Colossians, he says, he's talking about how we, 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 when people become saved and they, God's changing and the gospel's transforming their life, there, there's all this garbage that was in their life, and then they start thinking about that, so they have to say, I need to repent of those things, think about my life differently in light of who, what Christ has done for me, dying for my sins, and I start needing to doing the things that he wants me to do because he's enabled me to do that. So in explaining that in Colossians 3, Paul says, put to death, therefore, repent of, what is earthly among you. 
what represents life on earth. He says, and he lists things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And, and later in, 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 in the book of Matthew, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says a very similar thing to what he says in Luke 12. But he ends that one a little bit differently. He says in that, in that section on this same kind of thing, he says, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one or you will love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue of our hearts. That's how we know if we're pursuing God. What is it we worship? Where is our hearts? What consumes us? What's our passions? In the, in the message we talked about a couple weeks ago in Luke 10, we talked about the tyranny of the urgent. Anybody remember the tyranny of the urgent? Anybody read the pamphlet on the tyranny of the urgent? Okay, a few of you. Good for you. We have some more in the back, by the way, if you didn't get it. Tyranny of the urgent, what keeps us is that the urgent activities of life crowd out the important activities of life. And what Jesus is talking here, I would call the tyranny of the earthly. The earthly treasures of life crowd out the heavenly treasures of life. The principle works the same way. The same guiding principles that we spend our time and how we spend our money is the same. In Luke chapter 10, what Jesus is responding to a man who said, what must I do? And, he, and Jesus asked, what is, it, what, is it, what is it that God requires of you? The man said, rightly, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's an issue of worship and service. That's how we know if we are seeking after God. It's is that passion, that desire to love him with all that we have. Remember the fourth question? How do we know if pursuing God? Well, what did Jesus tell us? The question is, what does your heart worship? Last week is Easter. Last week, Josh read from 1 Peter. And unless we think that, okay, I need to start earning favor with God. I need to start storing up treasure in heaven by the things that I do. I need to do more, be better, try harder, and therefore I'll get more from God. We miss the point. We are responsible to manage what he gives us. But then the question is, where does it come from that he gives us? And it comes from the generosity of God, but also through what he's done in Christ. I want to reread what Josh preached. We did not, we planned the sermon, but he picked not a Luke passage, but the Peter passage that dovetails exactly with Luke 12. And this is the way the Holy Spirit works things like this. Peter says this, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is immeasurable, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who, who's, who earned the things that we're inheriting? Christ did. His righteousness. All the things that he does, he does it, he earned it all, we get to inherit it. And it's kept for us in heaven, untarnished. And then he goes on and says, who by God's power are being, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you will be you, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of your genuous of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor in the revel, in the, excuse me, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, you'll see what our faith has produced, our faith in him. Though you have not seen him, and we don't see him right now in the same way, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We, Christ has done a tremendous amount of things for us. We are, are, we are secure. We are significant. We are accepted before God because of what of Christ has done, not because of our money, not even because how we use our money. It's all been given to us in Christ. We celebrate that every week through the communion and the Lord's Supper. 
the body broken for us for, the, for healing and reconciling us to God. His blood shed for us so that we can have forgiveness of sins. And, the, and he says, according to his great mercy that he's been lavished on us in Christ, we get to celebrate that every week. This is a reminder every week, where's your heart? Where's your treasure? As we celebrate now, as we move into taking communion, I would like you to think about that. Come up to the table and think about verse 34. And if you need to bring your Bible and have verse 34 with you, I would encourage you to do it. And the question, and it's a statement, and the question then is, read that statement and think about it for you, your family, for yourself. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is, what do you treasure? Christ and what he's done for you or all the other possible things that can distract you from him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God of mercy. Lord, we thank you for your continued provision for us. Lord, I thank you, first of all, for the provision that we have in Christ of the forgiveness of our sins. And not only the forgiveness of our sins, but we are righteous before you because of what Christ has done. Your generosity is overwhelming, and for eternity we will be celebrating your grace, your mercy, and your generosity to us in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we, as we think and we move into worship, you will burn into our hearts, draw to our attention. What is it we treasure? And I pray, Lord, that we can learn as a people, as individuals, as families, but particularly as a church, to treasure you above all things. That our hearts, our minds, our hands, our heads will be focused on all the things that you have provided for us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, in your precious and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.